Hey, Andy. Hey, Jed. How are you? I'm doing terrific. How are things? They're good. They're good. We're easing into summer. I, I think we've like relaxed our dress code. It looks like a little bit because it is it is summertime. I like it. Um, well, we sure have a lot of stuff to tackle. There's so many things that are going on, but I suppose yeah, we should is. remind people what the heck you know wonky folk is and who we are. And um, you want to take a swing at it to get started. Well, yeah, you're listening to the Wonky Folk Podcast. That's uh, me, Andy Rotherham. I'm a co-founder and partner at Bellwether. And Jed, who is an education consultant, led the California Charter Schools Association for a long time, long time leader in our space and, and was a school operator himself uh, when I first got to know him down in, in San Diego. Uh, and we generally, it's us. We had our first guest last week. We had Mackie Raymond from Credo on to talk about the new credo charter study and that data and that body of work. And so we're ha we'll have some guests uh, in the future too. We're going to make that sort of an irregular, uh, regular thing. Good intro. I like all that. Yeah. Decidedly, yeah. decidedly amateur. Cause we are, we are, we are amateur podcasters. We're not yet professionals. And we're excited though about some of the guests that may come on here shortly. So that, that'll all be fun, but Hey, um, let me just get started. Cause right as we go to recording, we have this announcement coming out of the Supreme court. I didn't I didn't foresee this happening. And here it is uh, happening literally an hour ago or two hours ago where the Supreme Court announced that they are not going to take up the Peltier um, uh, charter school skirt case in North Carolina. This is a very big deal. I've been writing about it at Charter Folk. I know you're aware of the case generally, Andy, but I wanted to just dive into. And I also I've done some texts with some some lawyers on this case already. I'm not a lawyer. Within a week, there will be, or even a few days, there will be a lot of lawyers with deep analysis of the implications of this uh, this decision. But and I why do know ground listeners like so. The issue was this dress code lawsuit and whether or not it turned on whether or not charters are going to be considered under the law of public schools or private schools. But why don't you talk about the implications and what it means? Like, what does it even mean right now that they they passed on this? So what's what is what is the existing law going to look like? Yeah, so there was a, a charter school, charter school day in in North Carolina that was making the argument that their dress code requiring boys to dress in a certain way and girls to dress in another way, specifically to wear skirts, was something that they were empowered to, to enforce because they were not state actors. And so the United States Constitution protections for public school students did not apply to a charter school. And, this, and the school was very upfront about its, its arguments along these lines. They said that the reason that they wanted girls to wear skirts is because they believe that girls are quote unquote fragile vessels and they wanna teach the boys that they needed to protect the girls along these lines. So it- You don't need the Supreme Court for this. They could spend a couple hours with my girls and I could debase some of the idea that girls are fragile vessels. There's no, uh, no, no reason to bring in our well-traveled Supreme Court into this. So there was a court in, the, in North Carolina that made a decision that had a lot of people alarmed, which was that uh, the, the, the charter school would be in fact able to it, use its dress code, arguing that the U United States Supreme Court protections don't apply to the school. The school then uh, appealed up to the, uh, uh, up to the, I'm sorry, the authorizer then appealed up to uh, the, the appellate level and the appellate level, thankfully, found 
that in fact, the United States Constitution does apply to this school and you cannot discriminate on the, against the girls you know, on that basis. So what happened is the school decided to seek an appeal from the United States Supreme Court. And so many people were worried that the United States Supreme Court might take this case. And if they took it and deemed that charter schools are not state actors um, and thus you know, don't have the constitutional protections applicable to them, it could have rippled through and had damaging effect across the entire charter school movement. Because it could have un 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 uh, undermined decades of jurisprudence about what a charter school is and, and never mind the political repercussions in, in all these different contexts when, when people would learn that charter schools would supposedly have some ability to discriminate against kids. So today we learned yeah, that the United well, it seems like it would have been a gift to charter critics, right? Like it, it would have been it, an incredible talk. It would have been just horrible for us. And so for the United States Supreme Court to say, no, we're not touching that case for purposes of, of whether or not charter schools are state actors and whether or not the United States Constitution protections are applicable to their students and to their employees, they're staying out of it. So this is a very big decision. It's, a, it's, it's both good as, in terms of relief in the short term, but it also has some implications for potentially religious charter schools that are decisions that are coming down the pike. Yeah, is there any reason to believe maybe that like in, in Supreme Court jurisprudence, they call it a clean vehicle. So a case with like really a clean fact pattern that's not so it, it can it can be a very clear kind of precedent. They like clean vehicles. Is there any chance they passed on this one just because it's not a clean vehicle? And we're going to see a different case come along and this all the concern about this will start right back up again. I've heard some religious scholar and, uh, and, and lawyers argue we shouldn't have brought a case that had the term fragile vessel in it. Isn't there a better one that we could have brought? But I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not the legal mind here. I don't know if there's a different angle you can now take to charter schools not being state actors. It seems fairly definitive what's happened right now, but um, clearly we're in a time when religious freedom advocates and, and lawyers are looking at the charter school space as an opportunity to advance things and we'll see if they continue to do so. But if I can just, you know, just throw in the additional implication here, we have this religious charter school that's been approved in Oklahoma and it's now right. being contested in court. And it seems as though if the United States Supreme Court says that charter schools are in fact state actors for purposes of, of the applicability of the United States constitution, and they cannot discriminate against kids on various bases, it's going to be very difficult for religious charter schools to remain in the space or to be able to operate as they might otherwise as a private school. And again, uh, we would see that to be a very positive development. I don't think anybody in our world should be counting chickens or thinking that this is dispositive, but it's a very good day for charter schools right now. But it seems like kind of confused. I mean, I'm watching like so Peter Deutsch, who used to be a you know Democratic member of Congress, he's opening religious charter schools now. Like it, it, it and I think there's a tendency to see this as we see lots of things through sort of a left right or liberal conservative kind of valence. And, and it seems like it's actually more the politics on the ground are a little bit more confused and unsettled. And so like something you said just a second ago. So I think we haven't seen the last of this. It seems like we're having a set of conversations. We'll talk more about some of them later, I think, on other issues where we're sort of uh, figuring out new definitions and redefining boundaries for things. Yeah, there are things that I tend to be one to defend or support the idea that charter schools should be given a great deal more latitude, a great more freedom and all that stuff. There are certain things, Andy, that are just beyond where I think we can go. And the idea 
that U.S. Constitution protections, kids could be kicked out for some identity they may have or sort of some belief that they may have, or certain employees may no longer be able to work there. Yeah. Their beliefs. This is just a bridge way, way, way too far. And so- well, it seems like it erases what is public about charters and in some important ways, not only you know politically, but just substantively in terms of the experience of what happens in, to people inside a, inside a charter. So it, does, it, it certainly seems important that way. What do you think about these other cases that the Supreme Court is just about ready to act upon? What about affirmative action? What about some of the other implications of these uh, recent decisions? Yeah, I mean, look, the affirmative action case is going to be interesting. And I, I do think we'll actually have an, a, a sort of tangential impact on charters and impact on K-12. I mean, you know, look, we're recording this, um, you know, the beginning of the week and, and we're expecting a decision on that any day. And so this, what I'm about to say may not, uh, may not age well, right? But like, it's, it seems like the court, just given that they wanted to take the case in the first place, the composition of the court, it seems like the, the smart money is that they're going to strike down affirmative action. Um, and, and so again, everything I'm about to say may be irrelevant if, if, if something peculiar happens, but that seems like, that seems like the smart money bet. And I think it's going to, you know, a couple of things it's going to, um, it's going to reinvigorate a debate in K-12 about, okay, you know, what are, what kinds of things are going to affect, depending how they write it, it could actually impact certain K-12 admissions schemes and so forth. Um, second, what's the role? I mean, we do always do have to remember when we're talking about affirmative action at the higher ed level, we're talking to some extent about redressing problems that we could have dealt with in K-12. You know, so when you have these these fights, whether it's eighth grade for high school spots or at the end of high school for college spots and the pipelines aren't robust like we would want them to be, you have to ask why. And a lot of that comes back down to K-12. Um, and then third, and I think this will be the unpleasant aspect of it, like it's going to be, you know, just uh, it's just going to be really toxic, I think, in how it, and, and, and the interesting thing about this one, I will say this will be a chance to, to sort of for people. There is nuance here. I mean, you live in a state where affirmative action was on the ballot. It was defeated quite handily. You just it's not support for it in public opinion. And so whether or not you agree with what the court, if, if assuming the court strikes it down, whether or not you agree with it. It, this is not like a counter-majoritarian ruling. There are things the court does that kind of go against majority opinion. We've sort of seen the fallout of that with the Dobbs, with the abortion case. This one is not it. People people sort of value diversity. Um, they think it's a really important value. You ask them that, they say yes. But then when you ask them specifically about using race and admissions, they're not real comfortable with it. When you ask them specifically about affirmative action programs, they're not real comfortable with it. And then every time it's on the ballot, um, uh, lately it, it has struggled, particularly again in California of all places. And if there's any good news there, it's that maybe when the dust settles, we can have a conversation about, okay, if you really do care about diversity in higher education and you care about higher education as being a, an engine of social mobility, which when you look at some of these schools, it's, it's hard to argue that it is, um, that it's not just sort of reinforcing, you know, existing, um, uh, existing class and social structures. So if we actually believe it should play a more disruptive role in ensuring social mobility, a level playing field, that we'll start to have a new conversation on, okay, what other kinds of remedies can you do there that would pass constitutional muster and still achieve those goals? And that could actually be a really fruitful uh, conversation. And again, with a big with a big role for K-12. But I, I worry that a lot of people are going to just feed this into this narrative that everything the court does is illegitimate, um, which is sort of a 
it doesn't even make sense because, you know, just last week they handed down a, a really important ruling on, on rights for Native Americans. And I didn't hear anybody yeah. saying that was illegitimate. Like people, it's the, the only illegitimate rulings are the ones that, that you don't like. Um, but hopefully we won't just get caught up in that vortex so we can instead be like, OK, what now? And, and, and what does this um, uh, what does this look like? Well, I think it'll be a very big decision if they decide that private entities aren't able to do this. And I'm really interested in what the ripple through effect will be on perhaps organizations that they weren't first thinking about. What does this mean for HBCUs, for example? Uh, what does it mean for other uh, schools that have been set up specifically to compensate for the fact that historically we haven't had the same number of kids in, in, in college from various races and backgrounds? Uh, are they no longer gonna be able to do these things? But I also feel like the California Prop 209 experience is probably a wise one for us to stay focused on. Because if you look at what happened right after Prop 209, it was startling. The number of the drop in the number of African-American and Latino students uh, in, in California public schools in the UC system was really sobering. And I think I remember seeing that at the UCLA Law School it might have dropped to just a couple of, of black students being admitted. And then the schools started to look at different criteria, not race specific, but experience specific. And it was really around, had, had these applicants shown resiliency, had they overcome this kind of thing or that kind of experience or whatever it may be. And we've seen a, a rebound in the number of African-American Latino students that are, are being admitted to UCs. I don't think it's achieved parity or gotten back to the point where it was before Prop 209 came along, but it's also proven to be something that was addressable via other means. And it's, it's very possible that we would see private schools do some, something similar if, if in fact the Supreme Court decides in this way. Yeah. I mean, well, there's two plausible scenarios there. One is that they just debate it because it will be very hard. You can just say, okay, we're not going to use objective measures anymore. Like there, there's, there's a way like college admissions are opaque. And so there's a way that that yeah. opaqueness that this, so one, one scenario is this ruling actually has less impact than people think because the schools just kind of go do other stuff. And like the real loser in the case is like the college board and, and, you know, it becomes like, if you were just like, yeah, we're not, so we're not going to have any measure that can be used to compare students we're just going to make these decisions as one-offs that's yeah. that and then there'll be litigation if you see sort of disparate impact but it'll be very that'll be very hard to prove and then the other scenario though is kind of what you're talking again this could be a moment let's separate the sheep from the goats you've got you got a lot of people saying they care about diversity in higher ed they just don't like affirmative action um let's we we're gonna be able to put that to the test okay how do we continue to in a meaningful way ensure that you do have have really meaningful diversity in higher ed, these schools, like how do you bring people together? And that, I, again, it'll separate the sheep from the goats, the people who are just, they were saying that because they were going after affirmative action. And then the people who really actually do care about that. Obviously in our sector, a really noteworthy person, that would be like a Rick Kalenberg who, you know, Rick is, you know, has written books about this. He's a huge proponent of economic affirmative action. Um, he's a huge opponent of economic school integrate. He and I have, have actually butted heads on that because I think he oversells what's possible with that in, in K-12. But he, he's got a, just a very principled position on this. And in fact, he testified for the plaintiffs in the case and it like cost him dearly. But he, he just thinks economic is the way. And I feel like if we can start to whether you agree with him on that or not, if we can start to have conversations about other remedies and other things that, you know, and then you figure out who's actually going to show up for those conversations. And again, like I think I got someone like Rick 
like he shows up for that. He, he, he cares deeply about diversity. He also cares deeply about like effective policy. Wouldn't his view is effective, effective policy. Well, one of the things that's important to keep in mind, as you, as you point out is what has been the experience of kids in the K through 12 system, such that they're perhaps not able to, um, uh, gain admission uh, without the use of affirmative action and what is yeah. it going to do to improve the K-12 you know, system? I want to go to this science of reading thing. I want to Before go Before we do, can we just walk know, you, that? I, is it so important? Other, are there like, any other Supreme Court cases you wanted to like, you know, to highlight? No, I mean, I, oh, I do think, yeah, there, there's one other set of cases that are coming that aren't here yet we should talk about. Just, but what you just said is so important. We treat talented minority kids as a scarce commodity and we treat really good schools is a scarce commodity and it leads to these really really screwed up politics like it, when everybody's fighting over seats at one really competitive school you have to ask why don't we have more and obviously yeah. charters are one way you can have enabling legislation states there's other stuff you can do but instead it turns into this holy war over who gets to go and you see this like this is the story san francisco boston new york northern virginia like this is you know and it's, it's crazy. In, in no other system are you like, oh, this thing's really popular. Let's make sure we don't have more of it. Exactly. And then, this, and then we treat the, the pipeline the same way. that These kids are like this scarce, rare thing rather than why don't we have more of them? And what are the things we need to do to create more? Which is, you know, there, there's a whole set of policy things there and structure things in terms of in terms of schools. And so it's sort of the debate is kind of infuriating and then leads to these really toxic politics. But the other cases you wanted to talk about, yeah. Well, I mean, let me just throw in on the scarcity thing, because I, I agree with you. I think that scarcity, especially around education supply, should be our collective enemy. Uh, there's no reason for it. And there are things that we could be doing to if, if schools have a certain number of kids that are applying beyond the, um, the, the spaces that are available, school districts and states and whatever should be obligated to provide that school with the additional facilities, the other support it needs to grow. Um, and the idea that we just do not do everything we can to grow those things that are clearly successful already, that is a scandal. And it's, it's something that we can, we can uh, address really quickly. Well, it shows how potent the, the, the sort of special interest politics here and the politics around this issue are. Because in any other field, you would. You'd be unleashing that energy, not bottling it up. But here, if it comes politically, you can bottle it up. And, and it's, just a, it's just a very revealing situation in terms of the politics and the power uh, in, in the sector. Yeah. But these other cases, yeah, I just have this feeling. And again, this is another one. Maybe it won't age well in 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 10 years when people go through the wonky folk archives and excavate them they'll they'll laugh at me for this but it seems like we're seeing a whole set of student and teacher expression cases free expression cases a lot of them focused on lgbt issues moving through the court so um you know there's a case in massachusetts about whether or not a kid could wear a shirt that says um there are two genders you know which sort of obviously outside of school that's a would be a, just a very clear First Amendment issue. Inside of school, it's more complicated. Um, you're seeing cases, a number of cases with teachers and pronouns and names that kids have changed and pronouns that don't correspond with biologic sex. A bunch of cases on that where teachers are saying, hey, we don't have to do that. I have a right not to do that. Now, traditionally, compelled speech by teachers has been kind of a cornerstone of how public schools operate. It's why you, you, know, you can't teach the world is flat or whatever. Um, but we're seeing a bunch of these cases. And so it just feels like, again, this idea that like we're, we're, we're sort of renegotiating boundaries and, and things like that we 
um, some of these cases, and I think there's going to be some potentially some interesting cases around student rights and compelled speech and teacher rights and compelled speech and, and potentially momentous cases. Cause everybody's like, Oh, what's the big deal? It's just pronouns. But like, if we start deciding that teachers have, you know, either like either right of conscious or faith exemptions from certain school policies, like, man, like as soon as you get outside of the real narrow thing around religion and like what you can wear and so forth, like that's just, that is that 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 is a Pandora's box that we will not uh, we will not close. And well, yeah. you talk about redefining public schools and what does it mean? Like that would be a huge one if teachers get. And I and I, see, I feel like people on all sides of these issues, regardless of what you think of them, need to realize the precedence that this is laying bare and the potential consequences. And it's again, it seems like in the next few years we're going to see more and more um, uh, of these of these cases. Well, these, they're the individual rights of the kids and then the, of, the, of the teachers. There's also really the institutional rights to have a point of view on historical uh, you know, conditions of the country or whatever it, it may be. I think it's really fascinating. Um, last year, the Texas State Board of Education turned down four out of five new charter school applications. And almost everybody was of the opinion that almost all five should have been approved, but it was just rejected for whatever reason. This last week, there's been an election. The Texas Charter School Association has been doing very effective advocacy and political work. And we have now a stronger state board in support of charter schools. So one year later, four out of five charters are approved. But the fifth school, the one that was denied, is another school that almost everybody believes is a strong applicant. But the reason cited by the state board for denying it was that they didn't like the woke curriculum that supposedly they were going to be teaching. And so it became a decision, not so specific to rights that you're bringing up, Andy, but it's along a very similar fault line there. What degree of, of entitlement do institutions and individuals have to take their own point of view on foundational matters such as these? And my own point of view is that we should be we should be receiving, you know, we should be more receptive. Got to allow a greater range here. But um, it's obviously we're at a time where we're narrowing more than we're, we're broadening. I think so. Although, I mean, I do have to say, like, you, there, there's, a, there's an idea that's out there in the school choice community that school choice is a solution to this, that we can just sort of everybody gets their choice. And so you don't have to have these big fights. And I think at some level, there's there's some merit to that in the sense of like, why fight over whether we're going to have Montessori or other, you know, other, other pedagogies? Why fight over we should have schools that like are very arts focused versus like, you know, pre-law, you know, STEM focused, whatever. Like that, those seem like dumb fights and, and, and we should let you know, the, the parents can, can sort of let their preferences be known. But I don't think you can be like, oh, we're just going to choose like which version of history we teach and we're just going to you know, choose about like how we think about like seminal events uh, in American history. I feel like a, a healthy society, you have to have some kind of a consensus on some of that stuff. And then you move forward. Sometimes that consensus changes, but you can't just like, it, you can't have choose your own adventure um, uh, on everything. And so that's why, again, in public schools, like you can't teach certain things in a, say a biology class or a geology class or a, a history class, right? You can't be you can't be, well, maybe the Holocaust didn't happen guy in uh, teaching high school history. You teach a curriculum that teaches about the Holocaust in all 50 states. And I, I feel like that's, it's fraught if we're not, again, if we're not careful. And some of this is just the hard conversations 
societies have to have to make decisions. And none of us will like all the decisions, but you have to live with them. I hear you. I also think there are certain foundational issues that are super complicated and one can take, a, there can be a variety of legitimate points of view taken on something as broad as well, how do we, how are we going to teach slavery? How are we going to teach the history of, of racial discrimination in our country? There's just so many different orientations you could have toward that. And I personally think a lot of them should be welcomed. Uh, and I've seen just in too many contexts, like in, in textbook adoption, you know, like the Armenian issue. I mean, the, the Armenian portrayal in, in the in, in textbooks was enough to slow down the entire State Board of Education in California for nine months. They couldn't make an adoption on the textbook because they kept having to come back on this. Yeah, issue. Yeah. So I just, you know, I hear you. Um, but I also feel like there and there are some things that are outside the bounds for sure. But um, a lot of it, I think, also is, hey, we're going to have a wide variety of opinion on these issues within society, and we need to have a wide range of opinions that are, are welcomed within public education as well as a foundational starting point. Sure, but you just said it. Some stuff's outside the bounds, and I feel like we're going to, we have to, like, and the bounds will, over time, will change. Um, but we ha you just have to have that, you have to have those conversations um, and, and I, and, and personally, I feel like I, I balance like an appreciation for school choice, let parents choose all of that with like a healthy society does have consensus around certain things. Um, and, and again, at, at broad strokes, you don't, it doesn't yeah. have to be that, you know, we're not indoctrinating people down to every, every little detail, but it, at broad strokes, you have to have some kind of a, of a, of a broad consensus around just around how certain things happen things like that. You can't, uh. People could take away their own meaning from it and all that, but I don't know. It just gets it. It, it, it strikes me we're on we're, we we are on dangerous ground. When we start deciding there's just all these different ways that that you do have questions of societal cohesion there. Yeah, well, something to come back to. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, I think we're going to. I mean, I think the one thing the last couple of things we've talked about have in common again is it seems like we're in a time. It's a it's a very fluid time in terms of redefining things, changing boundaries, and and that's you know. Interesting, and things will probably look different, uh, yeah. you know, in 10 years. I mean, I, as a teacher, we talked about this. I mentioned this before. You know, my, my, my theory was, could I give multiple perspectives to the, yeah. the, the students and have them grapple with them and challenge themselves to change their thinking and to recognize their own patterns of thinking over time? And it's really difficult to do. It's really difficult to teach multiple perspectives as a, as a teacher. And, and I think I got it wrong several times. But um, it is hard. Yeah. And. We, we got to support teachers. Part of the problem is we don't support them. So we're like, yeah. hey, go teach about these like really contentious issues and just sort of figure out how to do it rather than like, here's really high quality training and how to think about this and how to, you know, teach these questions. So one of the things I wanted to bring up was um, this, this article or this op-ed that, um, that Ava Moskowitz wrote about um, uh, phonics and, you know, finally, the establishment that has resisted phonics for so long, finally kind of getting its comeuppance. And I think it's just brought up the whole question. There's a lot of words to say, I told you so. <laughs> it was like 800 words. <laughs> well, I mean, if there's anybody that's compelling a lot and delivering a message like that, it's Ava too, right? But, um, you know, I think that um, it's brought up this whole issue of science of reading that I've wanted to come into, to, to, to return to. Uh, I mean, we had we had um, uh, Calkin. What's what's her uh, what's her first Lucy name? Lucy Calkins, yeah, the, Lucy Calkins, the, the you know, reading guru, a guru in, in quotes, but yeah, um, she's 
yeah, of whole language. And I yes. got my teaching credential right when she was coming into ascendancy. I mean, when I when I um, got my my district intern credential through Los Angeles Unified, it was just 100% whole language, whole language, whole language. Fortunately, I had a mother who specialized in reading, uh, teaching reading to kids. And I had just gone and raided her closets and ha I had all of her stuff. And plus I just had experience with my parents. So I think I had very, fairly good berries going into the classroom. I listened to all the stuff around whole language. I was like, maybe it actually works. I tried it for a few weeks. I was like, oh, forget it. And, and LA Unified was just so discombobulated. The management was so ineffective. No one knew what was going on in my classroom anyway. And so I taught how I thought that I needed to teach. But, you know, the thing that we, we, we fail to recognize is this whole debate around whole language and phonics. It happened within a political context where if you chose one thing or the other, you were not choosing instructional practice. You were not choosing pedagogical specificity. You were choosing sides in a culture war. There were people that believed that the old way of us teaching education with phonics and with books that went back to the 1950s with kids of certain races, all that, and the, and the way that we set up our classrooms in rows, there, that was a conservative yeah. way of, 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 edu of operating a school. And then there was the whole language folks that were like trying to discount that the phonics mattered, but also we needed a bunch of new books. And by the way, these books are gonna teach a whole bunch of different kinds of lessons. And by the way, we're gonna have a different kind of experience that we want for our kids. And so after the fact, we now start to like just parse to separate out the pedagogical expertise from the cultural context. And I think that's just a grave, grave mistake. We should always be remembering, maybe, I mean, clearly we made a terrible mistake in de-emphasizing phonics. Um, and everybody can go back and say, our schools of education let us down and somehow or another we like failed to recognize the proper pedagogy. That's not what happened. It's pedagogy got set up in a broader culture war and we made wrong decisions in that highly contentious. Well, we let ourselves, people check their brains and became partisan. I mean, it was you, people would come in from outside the sector and be like, it seems like there's a, a, a Republican way to teach reading and a Democratic way to exactly. teach reading. And you were like, yes, it would appear, I mean, it, it totally would appear that way. And that's deranged and has huge consequences. People, this is what happens. And I think like it's a, lesson that should carry forward to a lot of the debates today. When you check your brain for partisanship, like watch out and you can see, and especially now when everything's so reactionary. And so you've got people, you know, on both the right and the left, just taking sort of really out there reactionary positions just because of the other, you know, side. Um, uh, there's a huge lesson there. And, and the, to me, the frustrating thing about it, like going back to like project follow through and all that, there's been like lots of evidence on this for a long time. So this is, I think if it, if it helps it go down easier politically, be like, oh, this is all this new information and new research. We need to adapt to new research. Like if that's the narrative, that's, I get it. That's the political narrative. But like the fact is like there was lots of evidence. It was widely ignored. I mean, look, there was a billion dollar reading program during the Bush years and it fell prey to politics, right? And like it, you know, like we've had just over the years, like we've had efforts around this and, and they just get killed in this political crossfire. But, and I did write about this last week, I think, or the week before at Edgewonk, I do think we need, the, the science of reading people need to be careful. Like Eva deserves her victory lap. She deserves a lot of victory Absolutely. lap and how she was yeah. treated in New York. Like, and people are like, well, if you can do a better job, like 
go show us and she's shown them like so she <laughs> she i think she's entitled to a lot of victory a lot of victory laps sure but um uh the the, the science of reading people want to be careful and i worry they're now like salting the earth behind them a little bit, if you will, and being a little bit like, you know, and they need to be a little careful for two reasons. One, like you do not want, they, they were excluded from intellectual debate and they were, you know, cast out and all that. So why replicate that? Because it just creates a backlash. And then second, just substantively, um, if we over-index on phonics, there will be a backlash from teachers. This will be common core all over again. So you got to get this right. You've got to, you, and you've got to support uh, teachers and you've got to allow people to, to have debate because there will be mistakes. Not every state that's implementing a science or reading law is it going to be a great law. Is it going to be implemented well? You need that kind of debate. And, and that, that's how we learn, right? You, you see what's, what's going well, what's not going well. We debate it. You try to learn from it. And so I'm a little concerned uh, that there could be an over, there could be an over correction here. There should be an examination for sure. And all, I, I do think like all these people who they see profit and grift, you know, under every stone were like yeah. Lucy Calkins made an awful lot of money teaching kids to read the wrong way. Like, so, yeah. and it was, and I love her. So it's, 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 it's a, it's a poor reflection on the sector, but People should be very careful how we move forward because there's there, there's backfire potential there, and I am I am concerned. Um, I am concerned about that. Yeah, we just failed. We can look back and see how nonsensical it was outside our own context. But then, what's happening in the current moment, we can't see its applicability. And I just think so many things around pedagogy and instructional practice are being warped by our experience around the pandemic, by the polemical wars that we have, uh, by the pushback of the public education establishment to reform generally, and very little, very little focuses on instructional practice, very little actually focuses on what generates student learning. And um, yeah, I think we should all be sobered by that. And to find some, to try to find some anchors in, in you know, these very difficult uh, contexts. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's, that's spot on. And, you know, so much of this, I, I wrote a piece a few years ago called the wild one, uh, like the wild one movement or whatever it was about sort of some of the stuff that was going on. It was from that, you know, that Marlon Brando film, where, you know, what are you rebelling against? Well, what do you got? And I feel like <laughs> that sort of really is like kind of where we are. People are frustrated and there's data on this, like across both parties, Republican or Democrat, if people are upset about school closures, they're more likely to be upset about a whole host of culture war and other issues. People are just, they're angry and they're frustrated. Yeah. They feel like they, they feel like they weren't taken seriously and that no one's taken accountability for that. Um, it's why like people are like, why is everybody still upset with Randy Weingarten? It's because people feel like there hasn't been accountability. There's a whole bunch of people who want, who want, yep. they just want it. They want someone to acknowledge, Hey, that some bad stuff happened here. And the fact that they're kids and no one's doing that. Um, and I feel like that is informing a very reactionary politics that yeah. will then get in the way of, of getting stuff done. Cause I think, you know, and look, I'm a, you know, congenital, um, you know, I'm a sort of a, con a congenital moderate, but like my, my view, like you step back, you see stuff both parties are doing and you're like, what? Like, yeah. this doesn't make any sense. Doesn't even make any sense with your prior commitments, right? Yeah. This is like stuff that you just thought up, you know, a week ago. Um, but it's because of, of how spun up everything is. And, and, and there'll be some collateral damage from that in our sector, for sure. I wasn't tracing the science of reading phenomenon early enough to see when exactly they started it. My guess is, that it would have been pre-pandemic 
And they would have chosen science as some trustworthy foundation that we could go to. And of course, we get through the pandemic and everything around vaccines and all that stuff. Science has now been politicized. There's nothing, right, that we feel like we, we can all believe in anymore, science. Right? You, can't, you can't swing a dead cat where I live without hitting one of these signs about how in this house we believe in science. <laughs> but it's just, it's, it's just crazy. And, um, and I, we, we had Mackie on last, last time, and it's just amazing how she brings this information to, to policymakers and to the general public. There's not that much interest in it. And if anything, yeah. people are taking away from her the data that she will need to continue to have these kinds of uh, studies right. in the future. And so um, and her data has the data has changed. I mean, the most stunning thing about that study is the it's like the results have changed. People we talked about this at the last podcast. Like people treat it like frozen and amber, you know, from from two thousand nine. But it's because science is now this like trump card. Well, it's science. Like science is not settled. Science is like an investigative process of learning and refining and so forth. But we have decided to weaponize it. So the science is always settled. And you remember like. You know, I mean, who the hell knows, like, the origin of, of COVID, but it sure seems like maybe it could have come from a lab. That seemed plausible in 2022, right? But back then, that was, like, against the science, and you were basically, you know, you you were, like, a tinfoil hat person, right? Like, people assumed if you thought that that might be the case, you also, you know, believe all this other, you know, you believe all this other stuff. And, like, the science and the evidence has changed, right? And that debate has now changed, and U.S. intelligence agencies are split on that question. And like that should like humble everybody a little bit. And that's my point on like the science of reading. Like we, there's definitely some stuff we should do. The evidence points in a direction. We should train teachers based on the, on the best available evidence, but we should not then become like crazy illiberal and being like, this is now settled and this is the way. And I worry some science of reading advocates. I've heard people say things, you know, we have to make sure there's no one in an ed school who doesn't believe in the science of reading. And like, yeah, I don't crazy. know, I'm not there on that. Like, it's I think crazy. like that's, to me, that sounds like, you know, on something like that, you want to know, okay, well, where's the limiting principle? What other things should we not, you know, like it, it so I, I just think it's a, it's a good time for, to, on a lot of issues, people to sort of take a deep breath. Well, and often it's determined by a small number of very impassioned people who show up at a school board meeting and just it, attempt to impose their will. Yeah, and we should talk will... about we should talk about Moms for Liberty. Um, but uh, one other thing on this, someone we should mention before we get off of science of reading is okay. Emily Hanford, the journalist who sort of started calling attention to this, did articles for American public media, did podcasts, yeah. did that whole series recently, sold a story. I can remember a few different times over the years, you'd get a journalist, usually not an education journalist, because they sort of are, are sort of, you know, they, they, they bathe in all this. And so they're, 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 they're sort of caught up in it, like from outside the sector who would come in and write an article that basically like, not to put too fine a point on it, was like, hey, reading instruction sure is fucked up. And <laughs> everybody would be like, yeah, that's right. Like, look at that. Yeah. And then like that article would like evaporate into the ether right it would just bounce off and then everyone yeah. would get back to business as usual and Hanford to her credit I do think this is in, in like she didn't bounce off she was able to get traction I don't know if it was different modalities if it was her just force of will whatever but for whatever reason she's gotten traction on this in a way that that no one has a very long time and um 
that's what, and is changing is changing policy uh, as a result. And that's a just an enormous credit, uh, enormous credit to her. Absolutely. We have to have somebody that can, can get through the noise. And every once in a while, you have a journalist that can get to the bottom of things. So yeah, she just, I don't know, the skill set, the timing, whatever it is, like she just deserves an enormous amount of credit because many people have bounced off uh, before she got there. So though you said you want to talk about parents. I, I mean, I assume you're on your way to Philadelphia for the Moms for Liberty. You're just like waiting to finish our <laughs> podcast. Then you're going to head to the airport. Got my, my plane ticket for tomorrow. Nice. I, uh, I heard a story about them. I did not know this. Apparently, um, and since this is a podcast, we don't have to check our facts. So it may not be true, but I think it's true. Uh, somebody said they apparently give this award. It's called the Sword of Liberty. And I guess they gave it to Ron DeSantis not too long ago. So there's a picture of him with like this sword, which, yeah, did you know about this? It's like Excalibur or something pulled out of that the stone? That was my thought. Jed, we think alike. That's why I get a lot. My thought was what like some Moms for Liberty person like pulled it out of a copy of Gender Queer or something. And that's like how this like all started. That was exactly, that was exactly where I went. That's uh, what I learned about this. Well, I mean, it's, uh, it's, you know, barbaric, you know, um, uh, 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 you know, strategies and tactics of uh, attacking the fortress, you know, straight out of the middle ages that, you know, seems an uh, appropriate comparison point, you know, in terms of looking at some, the tactics of, of, of some of these, some of these groups these days. I dare say they may have been more comfortable with purient stuff in the Middle Ages than, than some people are now, but that's uh, neither here neither here nor there. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm struck. They're an interesting group. I mean, you can't you can't avoid them. Um, I think yeah. that you have to look at them along a couple of dimensions. Like, are they um, helping, hurting? You know, um, on different things, and and different people are going to agree or disagree on that. And then you know, the Southern Poverty Law Center recently labeled them a hate group, which if I were them, I would probably be pretty psyched about because I'm sure that's been good for fundraising. I, I you know, yeah. I, I, I've got my issues with them to be sure. And going back to science of reading, I think yeah. they're creating some real complications around science of reading and curriculum adoption. Um, but I don't think they're a hate group. Like I, I that, oh. that to me, that's a that's a pretty serious label, and there are hate groups. And I think when you start labeling groups like Moms for Liberty hate groups, you at once help their fundraising and you help all the other hate groups maybe sort of seem a little less, you know, yeah. and, and I don't a little, little less nauseous, right? I don't want to overstate my criticism too. I mean, I think that um, there's all sorts of legitimacy to um, many of the issues that they that they care a lot about and, and to their tactics and what they're trying to do. The thing I find uh, troubling right now is that the venue within which public education decisions are made are these public board meetings, where if uh, a small splinter group comes in, in completely, you know, impassioned to take an extreme point of view, they're not necessarily going to get the board to adopt that extreme view, but they are going to be able to uh, slow down the decision, perhaps, you know, stop the decision, create so much tension and ill will between the board members, whatever it may be, that whatever they have to do to weather this chain, this challenge that's been happening on this particular case degrades the board's ability to make decisions on all sorts of other issues. Yeah. And I think it's time for us really to be thinking about what is the ideal governance circumstance for a public education entity. I really, I do believe that there are venues where we need the public of whatever ilk to be able to come out. I believe that, I believe that's more at the authorizer level. 
not at the operator level. If we had our public hospitals, if their boards were public meetings where people were coming and, 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 and basically insisting that the operation of the hospital, you know, follow whatever their dictate is or whatever it is, our, our, our ports, our harbors, you know, if, the, if they were governed in such a way that the operators were subject to whomever it was that would sign up, show up at the meeting, we would just simply have, imagine if our military, you know, if our boards that are running the Navy were subject to a school board meeting, um, you know, uh, protocol, we simply wouldn't get the excellence that we need. So I think we need to find a way to allow the public to have its, its you know, its chance to engage with regulators, but less so with operators. And the regulators, if, if they see the operators doing something that's just not permissible, well, they of course intervene but we protect the operators from just this chatter and, and uh, controversy that's clearly counterproductive. Yeah, I think this is like a, it, it, you know, I think I, I watch this as a state board member because like we public comments important. I think it, you know, it's a First Amendment activity. It's yeah, like right yeah, there. Not your state board thing. That's yeah, great. no, petition the government for redress of grievances. That's that's no small thing. And and I even when they're saying things that I don't agree with, I love that people can come and do that and they don't have to worry about like retribution and you know. Yeah. All the things. If you if you spent time elsewhere in the world and you've seen, you know, like you you realize how precious this is. Um, but at the same time, it can get in the way. It can become if it just becomes theater. Like it actually, in some ways, works against the public interest in the sense that people are just showing up because they have something they want to talk about and they're there and they're very sincere. They get drowned out by whatever the sort of theater of the, of the moment is. Um, so I do think, yeah, we want to think about how do you how do you balance all of those all of those things and and lead to sort of you know both effective communication so boards actually are hearing from the public and know what's going on and also um, uh, you know and those rights are protected again obviously but then also yeah. sort of efficient operation. Um, the other thing with this related to Moms for Liberty though, like that you said in terms of, of how they operate. Like, I feel like I have a much better sense what they're against than what they're for. And I feel like that's what some of the, uh, some of these new parent groups who like you, I'm sympathetic to, to some of the issues they raise. I mean, like, and people in our sector pretend like there hasn't been like an enormous leftward lurch of the schools in the last few years. Like it's obvious that they're every, it, it's one of these things like, you know, you're not supposed to say, but everybody kind of knows so like, why don't we just say it? We'd have a healthier conversation. Um, and I don't think that's all bad, incidentally. I think some of that stuff is good. Um, some of it not. And we need to talk about that. Um, but like, I don't know what they're for. I get it. And, and, and they seem to be kind of all over the place. So when I see them like, you know, going after like the, um, like the Ruby Bridges book, you know, yeah, in Tennessee sure. or, and also the other one there, which was a, just a good book for young kids. It's just a book about Martin Luther King's life that I think, as, as I recall, was key to like a second grade level, just like a just a good, you know, just a good biography for kids to read. As you can obviously see where that would 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 fit into the to a curriculum, especially certain times of the year. Um, uh, and they're against that, you know. Yeah. And so, like, I don't know. I struggle. I struggle with that because if they're, you know, when they say, "Hey, schools shouldn't be transitioning kids in secret," and that's happening a lot, like. They have a point and we should talk about that. That's another one of these ones. Nobody's like, oh, don't talk about that. We should talk about that. Um, but then when it, it, it's hard to then when the next thing is like people saying, let's, you know, get rid of teach about Ruby Bridges because it might make people feel bad. And I feel like they have, you know, we'll see how this, their conferences, obviously, they got a lot of juice. They got like, you know, yeah. Donald Trump's there, for goodness sake. But yeah, um, how they translate that, I think 
is this the tea party? And so it's sort of going to dissipate or turn into something else, or can they build a, a, a actual lasting uh, institutional depend on how they, how they answer those kinds of questions? Yeah. Well, um, always love talking about these things with you. And, um, you know, uh, we got a couple of weeks and it seems, it seems like, it just seems like the volume of activity that's happening right now, uh, just the seismic changes that are happening. I, I just find it a challenge to stay on top of it. So, uh, yeah, I did try. Do you think it's because like the pandemic kept everybody so focused on one thing, which was the pandemic that we're seeing like, you know, there's just, there's just, just a, like a, a buildup and it's being released or what do you think's, what do you think's causing that? Things. Things. We didn't even talk about the NAVE scores because like, at one level there's all this attention and then at another level, is there really enough attention to like these core things like the catastrophic learning loss? Yeah, I mean, I think that the the what we're seeing is just an acceleration of the splintering of society. I mean, just Facebook and you know partisanness and uh, and the consensus around how our schools operate is just disintegrating before our eyes. And so it's fine to say, oh, it's disintegrating, but that means as they separate, each one needs to like uh, begin to make decisions for itself again. And in the separation, they can't help but criticize whomever they're separating from. And it's just creating this period of just intense, intense controversy. And I also think dumbing down of the discussion. We're just not getting to the most important stuff right now. And I, I, I you know, being at a high tech high or being, you know, at, at a lot of church school organizations that I think do an incredible job around the structural issues. It's very hard. It's very difficult to do this incredibly well. And we need our boards in consultation with their staff members and with their parents or whatever in their community, really talking about the right things, you know, and, and some of these things are going to be controversial and difficult. Um, and I'm just not sure that, you know, that conversation happening in a setting where the next day you could find yourself on social media, the, the you know, the enemy of, you know, some right. large number of people. I don't believe that is how we get the excellence of the discussion that we need uh, to, to go forward. So, yeah, um, yeah. And no, I, I like, yeah, I think that's a good and we didn't get to we'll talk about another time, like. The whole thing on charters, that, and this goes to the science of reading, and and like they have control over their inputs. That's all that makes them special. They get to control who is doing the teaching and what is being taught. And in a business that is a teaching and learning business, yeah. what education is like that is no small thing. And I, I feel like all the theatrics around charters sort of ignore that core thing, and it probably more than anything else explains the improving results that Mackey found, for instance. Yeah, I know we want to jump off here. I just, I think that when there are problems within the traditional public school system that become even more visible and more apparent, charter schools are looked to anew. And um, we exist because there are those problems. And we also have a status quo that is trying to sweep a lot of those problems under, under the rug. And what we're seeing right now is rugs are disintegrating. <laughs> it's just, uh, things are where they are. And I think that Charter schools will see a resurgence in momentum yeah. along these lines, but that's not all good because it's a sign of the, of the fact that there are just all these other challenges in public education right now that are not being addressed as they need to be. Well, Jed, I'll just leave you with this thought. If okay. I were going to quit my job, which I don't plan to do because I enjoy podcasting with you and other things, but if I were and I were going to become like a singer-songwriter duo, like playing coffee shops, the name of my band would be Fragile Vessel. <laughs> Well, can we bill ourselves as click and clack? <laughs> click and clack. <laughs> <laughs> All 
All right. Great seeing you, Eddie. Take care. Hey, see you, buddy. Have a good couple of weeks. I'll see you soon. Okay. Bye-bye.